Hello, I'm Dr. Jason Wingard, and welcome to the Learn for Life podcast. Here's a quick trivia question for our listeners. What was the largest oil spill in history? Need a hint? Nearly 330 million gallons of oil were spilled, most of it making it all the way to the sea. That oil covered more than 1,500 square miles with a four-inch thick oil slick. Here's another hint. The spill was a deliberate act. The Learn for Life podcast, exploring the people, the skills, and the global forces driving change in our professional lives, with host Dr. Jason Wingard, Dean of the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, part of the Thought Leadership Series, Talks at Columbia. The 91 Gulf oil spill created an enormous environmental disaster, obviously man-made. It took a great deal to clean it up. That was about 8 million barrels total, the largest oil spill in human history. Iraqi forces fighting in the war decided to spill the oil to slow down enemy American troops who were advancing on them. With fires burning for 10 months straight, it took more than 10,000 workers from 38 countries to contain them. Fast forward 10 years to 2012, and one million barrels still had yet to be cleaned up. This is the sort of challenge that a relatively new area of study, sustainability science, is asked to tackle. It's a discipline that brings together the sciences and social sciences to address problems that threaten the well-being of humans and the planet. With me to discuss the critical need for sustainability science in the 21st century is Dr. Arthur Lerner Lamb. Deputy Director of the Earth Institute's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University and Academic Director of the Sustainability Science Program at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Art, welcome. Thank you for having me. I just mentioned that sustainability science is a relatively new area of study. Many people have familiarity with environmental science, but they know a little bit less about sustainability science. Can you tell us what sustainability science is and how it grew into a discipline of study? Let me first encapsulate environmental science, which is really the study of Earth systems, the biological, physical, and chemical systems that make up the environment we live in. And it's really the study of the system of systems, how all of those things interact. And so when we think about environmental science, it really is a deep scientific study of uh, the way in which Earth processes uh, affect the environment that we can observe. But sustainability science has a different approach. And this approaches uh, the study of the planet in terms of what we actually mean by sustainability, which, to put it simply, is all about intergenerational equity. The fact that we don't want to use up our resources at such a rate that future generations aren't uh, able to have the quality of life that we have now. And that notion of intergenerational equity adds an element of time and future predictability to the study of environmental sciences, as well as elements of policy, of economics, and the ways in which uh, human activity and the environment actually intersect. So when we talk about sustainability science, we're including environmental science, but we're really after how do we actually maintain what we have now so that future generations can also enjoy a good quality of life. So Columbia University's President Lee Bollinger recently announced the formation of a climate change task force. Why is Columbia uniquely positioned to deal with the issue of climate change? 
There are many reasons for that, but principally it's because of Columbia's history in the scientific research related to the planet. We have the largest accumulation of climate scientists, for example, uh, in the country, uh, over 200 folks doing research on, on the planet. But even more importantly than that, Columbia is an institution in New York City. It is the capital, uh, sort of a globally intersecting place where uh, we can talk to manufacturers, we can talk to finance, we can talk to sectors in which we think climate is and climate change are having an impact. And in the tradition of broad interdisciplinary work at Columbia, we can bring in not just the sciences, but also the applied sciences and engineering. Uh, the political sciences, economics, public health, and even aspects of history and equity. Certainly a big issue, but Columbia is definitely poised to tackle it. You are a seismologist by training, which means you study earthquakes. Why did you decide to specialize in that particular scientific field? Well, it's interesting. When I, when I was an undergraduate, I thought I would be majoring in physics, actually, and I started doing that. But on a whim, I took what would be commonly called rocks for jocks. And there are a number of reasons for that. But mainly, I was uh, sort of an outdoorsman, and I really liked climbing and hiking. And the thought was that uh, I would learn a little bit about what was actually going on in the environment. So I began to have sort of a hobbyist interest in geology. But somewhat fortuitously, that was a time when the earth sciences in general were going through what we would commonly call a scientific revolution, the development of plate tectonics. And uh, that theory, as it were, is really an organizing principle for thinking about the planet. And that was incredibly attractive because it was new. Uh, there was so much work to be done, even as an undergraduate, you could do frontier research. And one of the critical issues was what the interior of the planet looked like and how that was contributing to the surface. And as it turns out, seismology is a tool that we can use to interrogate and illuminate the interior of, the, of Earth. Uh, and so I became interested in it uh, because of that reason. Rocks for jocks. I like it. Rocks for jocks <laughs> is a great start. <laughs> so how did you decide to move beyond your area of specialty, which looks at natural disasters that typically aren't man-made, to leading a program that tackles a whole host of environmental problems which are man-made. Part of it has to do with my experience, my early experiences at Columbia. I came to Columbia in around, around 1985, uh, and uh, soon afterwards there was a very large earthquake in Armenia that killed quite a few people. I became part of a team that looked at the uh, tragedy uh, from a scientific perspective, but to do so, we had to travel to the area. And you now, unless you set foot on the ground, you really don't see what happens when an earthquake affects people. The damage was intense. Lives, of course, were lost. Lives were disrupted. The country itself suffered a terrible shock. And then soon after, in 1989, there was an earth, the so-called World Series earthquake in uh, San Francisco. And the contrast there was interesting to me because from a geophysical perspective, those two earthquakes were about the same size. But from an impact perspective, they were vastly different. And a lot of it had to do with, if you will, the preparedness of California in some way, and also the wealth, uh, the comparative wealth between the two countries. So I became interested in the interaction between culture and society and the impact of disasters. And I decided that this was an area that needed 
uh, some additional work. So speaking of California, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I went out to Stanford University for college in California. And so in Pennsylvania, I experienced no natural disasters. And in California, I experienced mudslides and forest fires and my first earthquake uh, my freshman year of college. Do you see the earthquakes in California or other parts of the world increasing in intensity or frequency now, mainly as a result of the activity that humans are causing, like mining and fracking and building dams, or is the frequency and, and intensity much the same? Well, we're able to, uh, these days, to effectively distinguish between the earthquakes that are what you would call natural processes, the consequence of plate movement, for example, uh, and those that seem to be triggered by human activity. Uh, there does seem to be an increase in the latter, whereas in the former, the natural earthquakes, uh, there's some indication that the largest earthquakes are occurring more frequently, but large earthquakes are so few and far between that it's very hard to put a statistical uh, certainty uh, on that number. Um, but we are seeing uh, an increase in earthquake activity as the result of mineral exploration, oil extraction, uh, injection wells, and so on. And that's actually a, an interesting area of study. We talk a lot about the future of work at the School of Professional Studies. It's the idea that new technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to transform the way we work. Intel and the research firm Concentric recently conducted a survey of business decision makers working in environmental sustainability. The study showed that there's a great deal of optimism that artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things can help solve long-standing environmental challenges. Art, do you agree? Do you believe that Silicon Valley-style tech offers hope to those working in sustainability science? This is uh, coming at a time when there has been an absolute revolution in our observational technologies as applied to the planet with what we would call a synoptic approach where we're getting massive amounts of data across very heterogeneous variables, things that are very different. And it's almost beyond human comprehension in the sense that how are we going to look for the trends, look for the patterns among all of these different data streams? And we do think that AI and machine learning can help there. So how do you envision the role that emerging technologies will have on hiring? As companies begin to look at how they're exposed to things like climate change and their interest in sustainability, they're going to be requiring knowledge capital associated with uh, the new technologies, uh, the new disruptors in uh, energy storage, for example, and the ways in which all of this raw data can be turned into real advice. If you're in a company seeking to respond to the climate challenge, being able to access a workforce that is cognizant of the emerging technologies, as well as the impact of, say, current industrial processes or human activity on the environment, uh, is going to be central to the success of any corporation. A pivotal Gallup poll was conducted a decade ago. It asked citizens of 128 countries how serious a threat global warming was to them and their families. The results showed that 41% considered it serious, 18% didn't, and an astounding 39% weren't even aware of climate change at all. The lowest awareness was sadly in the regions of the world that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change, the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. That report came out 10 years ago. 
Is awareness increasing and thinking ahead 10 years, how do you think global awareness will shift? Clearly, awareness is is increasing as we're seeing in the youth movements, the climate strikes, the development of websites and podcasts and uh, programs looking at issues of climate and sustainability. Awareness is clearly increasing, and it's clearly increasing in the developed countries primarily. You know, the richest countries, in some sense, can afford to think about the future in ways that the poorest countries cannot. We're talking about survivability in some of those countries, not just sustainability. But as the global level of livelihoods increases, as we understand how uh, sustainable development takes place, those countries, I think, will become more aware of what it would take to be sustainable into the future. But that actually poses a dilemma, because in order to take the world out of poverty, you need more energy, you need transport systems, and these are the things that have contributed to the human impact on climate. So we have to address that dilemma in a substantive way. Perhaps we leapfrog the traditional energy generation technologies and start talking about renewables. But that will require awareness on a global scale. So Art, awareness is one issue. Belief in the problem is another. It's difficult to talk about climate change these days without also talking about the effect of politics. You are a scientist and your colleagues are studying the effects of the environment and our activity on global climate change. How often are you asked about whether the results of your studies are real whether climate change is real or whether it's a political dialogue that is used in discussion around elected offices and not really real to the environment. You've hit upon a critical issue, Jason. The, the politicization of climate science is one of the worst aspects of our job these days. It's clear that that has led to delays in response, in action. The discussion, as you suggest has become so polarized that in some sense we really can't get anything done, particularly on the federal uh, level, and to the extent that the U.S. participates in international organizations. But there's another way to look at it. First, it's not just the politics at the federal level that will control our response in the United States. We tend to think of cities and the states themselves as laboratories where different strategies can be uh, designed and implemented. Let's see what works. And we see that consistently in the way uh, cities and states in the U.S. Uh, are responding. That's one way around it, but I think that's only temporary. Another aspect of this, of course, is what we might call climate communications. The idea is, what is the message that we're trying to get out? And, of course, we've been talking about the serious impacts of climate change, of climate variability, extreme weather, sea level rise impacting the coast, and we often don't talk about the solutions. Were we to talk more about what it is possible to do where investments in capital, investments in culture and society make sense, I think we might get a better reaction. So one of the things that Columbia is studying, in fact, and trying to implement are these different modes of communication. And maybe that'll change the political spectrum.
Do you think science will help to shift these polarized attitudes? I think it has to, because ultimately, if we don't rely on science, what else is there to drive the sorts of policies and decisions uh, that we're going to make? Science will give us predictability, but critical to that are the perspectives that politics, that economics, that culture and society, religion even, have on the way in which we turn science into advice. And scientists alone are not going to be part of that. We have to include a whole host of stakeholders. It seems that you as scientists can only do so much. Who do you work with and how are they able to help you and help this cause? One of the great things about being at a university, uh, particularly one as broad as Columbia, is that you can walk down the street, turn into another building, and talk to somebody with a vastly different set of perspectives and understanding of the issues. And particularly when we're looking at human environment interactions, it's the human part that actually gives us the most uncertainty. Right. So we've worked with people in the School of International and Public Affairs, in the Economics Department, in the Business School, in the School of Public Health, even in uh, urban planning and urban design. The whole idea being, of course, that we're producing knowledge about what is happening to the planet, but what does that really mean in terms of people's lives? and the decisions they make, and the investments that they have to make. So what a wonderful opportunity for the students, the graduate students in the sustainability science program to have access to and exposure to all of these different disciplines uh, during their course of study. And speaking of which, something we know about the future is that the population group we call Generation Z will be entering the workforce. And right now they account for a quarter of the population in the United States. 10 years down the line, the Gen Zers will account for a significantly large percentage of the talent base uh, that businesses are hiring. They'll also be a sizable customer base for corporations. An important attribute of Generation Zers is that many believe that the purpose of business is to serve communities and society rather than to simply make good products and services. This makes me believe that we may see more businesses rise to the challenge of finding solutions to environmental problems, which you speak of, if for no other reason than that they can attract talent and customers. Are you seeing for-profit businesses hiring experts in sustainability science because their future success depends on it? Are there any businesses that you wouldn't expect that are doing this hiring? You've really hit upon uh, the real change that's happening in society. Even starting with our students, uh, we're seeing that they're more interested in interdisciplinary work than in a, a single uh, deep study. They still want to be deep, uh, but they want to look across disciplines. And those folks are going to be the, the important contributors to a workforce that's going to solve some of these problems. But we are seeing businesses in engineering, in advocacy organizations, in government agencies uh, hiring our students because they need to understand these future interactions between humans and the environment and how that will affect their, their enterprise. If you're in government, you're thinking about policy. If you're in business, you're thinking about investment. And we're seeing particular applications in those sectors. Generation Z is more interested in the stakeholders of business than in the shareholders of business. And achieving that stakeholder versus shareholder balance, I think, is the objective that 
we're hearing from business leaders. Absolutely. So Art, are there any game changers in science and technology that are going to contribute to us solving the problem of climate change? Yes, Jason, there are. And uh, some of them are happening here at Columbia, elsewhere, universities and private corporations. I can think of two right off the bat. Battery development hasn't stopped. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries were a great contribution, but there still can be changes in the chemistry and the construction of batteries that will enable them to store more energy, to more efficiently be recharged, and to essentially help the use of renewables uh, that can be interrupted by interruptions in wind or the day-night issues having to do with solar panels. And a lot of that is happening in our battery center here at Columbia. But there's another one that's a little bit more problematic, perhaps a little bit far out in the future, but is central. And that is most of us in the field believe that we're not going to be able to contain the impacts of climate change and global warming without actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that has a whole series of scientific and technical issues associated with it. It can be demonstrated the issue is making it profitable. And can it be capitalized? Can it be expanded? If we were to solve that problem, make it economically viable, uh, that could have game-changing effects on the way we approach the climate. So as we talk about the evolution of batteries, I can imagine our listeners are wondering whether the purchase of an electric vehicle is really helpful for climate change. So what would you say about uh, electric vehicles and their benefit or not to the environment? I'd say there's a global learning curve on whether electric vehicles at the present time uh, can contribute. I think inevitably, uh, as we begin to understand the transition from fossil fuels to other energy sources, particularly in mobile energy sources, batteries have to play a role. Uh, Electric vehicles have to play a role. But the life cycle of the batteries, the maintenance costs associated with the vehicles, the charging infrastructure... Those are all elements that uh, have to be addressed and in some cases really have to be solved, real changes. Because let's face it, the oil and gas industry has trillions of dollars of infrastructure uh, that is dedicated to the distribution of liquid fuels. We don't have a similarly scaled infrastructure for the charging of electric vehicles. And if somebody came up with a plan for that, that also could be a game changer. So one last question uh, for you, Art. As a seismologist, you've traveled all over the world for your work, from Haiti to Kazakhstan to China. What's the most fascinating place that you've traveled to, or what's the place that you are most concerned about on the planet as a scientist? How about both? (laughs) (laughs) No, you, you learn a lot when you travel, whether you travel for work or travel for leisure. When I travel for work, it's often to a zone that is exposed to natural disasters in some way or to climate change in some way. I've been to Haiti after the devastating earthquake there that killed about a quarter of a million people. I've talked to folks that were involved in the great Indian Ocean tsunami. You can't help but feel that there is something more to do whenever you visit the site of a natural disaster, that there's something that we're not doing scientifically technically in our interaction with decision makers and policy makers that keeps on affecting humanity in the sense that humanity is affected by natural processes. But there are other aspects of travel that I I think are very important, and that is to get a sense of why the planet is the place where we've called home. There is no planet B. There's only a planet A. 
So I take advantage of travel, both in work and in leisure, uh, to understand the beauty of the planet and how we should be interacting with it. And if I had to name one place where that has had the most significant impact on me, it would be in East Africa, uh, looking at the great migration of wildlife, for example. When you see something like that, you cannot help but be awed by the fact that we live in a uh, an environment that supports just an enormous diversity of life that is consummated by individual and social and community struggles all of which leads to the quality of life as, as we know it in some way. Uh, and I think we really need to have that appreciation in order to really understand how to solve some of the problems that we face. Yeah, I've been to East Africa, and I share your appreciation for uh, preserving that ecosystem. Art, thank you very much for joining me. Your work is truly innovative, and it's preserving critical systems for our planet. So thank you for that. I want to make sure that our listeners have three key takeaways. So you can check me on these. Number one, the ability to respond and adapt to environmental and climate stressors will be central to the success enterprises in all sectors. At the same time, number two, there will be opportunities to take advantage of technological progress and even disruptors as society moves to more sustainable energy, transport, and manufacturing systems. And number three, we have a need to close the gap between the latest scientific research and a need for actionable advice, because that's, after all, what policy and decision makers truly need. Dr. Arthur Lerner-Lamb, thank you very much for joining us on today's episode of the Learn for Life podcast. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Learn for Life podcast, part of the thought leadership series Talks at Columbia, hosted by Dean Jason Wingard, the author of Learning to Succeed, Rethinking Corporate Education in a World of Unrelenting Change, and Learning for Life, How Continuous Education Will Keep Us Competitive in the Global Knowledge Economy. We want to hear from you. Tweet your questions using the hashtag Talks at Columbia, and we'll answer them on future episodes. For more information about Talks at Columbia and the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, visit sps.columbia.edu.